Welcome to a new podcast from Beijing, the capital of China. This is Barbarian to the Gate, a serious deep dive into the annals of Chinese history and culture. We'll choose a theme, and then over the course of four or five episodes, we'll explore that theme, or we'll run it completely into the ground. My name is Jeremiah Jenny. I'm a, a rogue sinologist, free-range writer, and educator, and historian for hire, based here in Beijing since 2002. And with me is my co-host James Palmer. I'm James Palmer. I'm a writer and historian, been in Beijing since 2003. So. James, we're looking at different themes, and we're going to explore them over the course of a, a couple of months. What is our theme that we're going to start with first? So,、uh, because of the podcast title "Barbarians at the Gate," we thought we'd go with barbarians, and we're going to talk about the borderlands of China, about the peoples there who interacted with China, who fought, worked for, traded with China, and who played really critical roles in Chinese history. We're going to start with one of the most liminal of these figures, a guy who really straddles. The world of the Tang Empire and the Central Asian world of the eighth century, which is An Lushan, and you know An Lushan really is kind of representative of this era because the Tang Empire, which ruled you know what we think of as China from the seventh century all the way into the the tenth century, you know it was one of the most cosmopolitan of all the the empires in Chinese history, and we. We take a look at the the old city of Chang'an, which is where present-day Xi'an is located, and we we see that it was a the world's largest city. It was a center of global trade. It was really kind of the the center of globalization, and and it was a, a place that it was not unusual to see you know people from beyond the the boundaries of the empire playing really key roles in economics, politics, and even the military. And just in everyday life, I mean, the, in Chang'an, you have people dancing to Central Asian music, eating Central Asian food, adopting Central Asian styles. The whole city is this kind of big mix. It's the it's the sort of New York of the time. It's this city of immigrants and new peoples. It's,、uh, so it's this massively mixed, vibrant place. I mean, even if we take a look at some of the the religious institutions. You could find in、uh, in Chang'an at its height. I mean, you had、uh, Zoroastrian temples,、uh, Manichaean temples, of course, you know, Buddhist monasteries,、uh, mosques. But you also had you know synagogues and and Nestorian Christian churches and、uh, the way that people from all over the world came to settle、uh, in Chang'an. And An Anlushan is this military figure who emerges from、uh, the the dim murkiness of history and, and enters the records sometime around the early eighth century. And, and we don't know that much about where he came from. I mean, prior to his military service with the Tang, Anushan, of course, is his Chinese name, and we don't even know what his his real name, his birth name was. It was probably something like Alushan. But we know that his parents weren't of high birth because later on he's mocked by other Turkic generals for being a commoner, not an aristocrat. The most、uh, convincing theory, I think, is that he was probably half Gok Turk and half Sogdian. So the Gokturks were sort of more nomadic people. The Sogdians were a settled Persian-influenced kingdom, up in modern-day Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. So even there, he sort of straddled these two worlds. And the first we really hear of him is when he's a a young man in the border forces, this big, strong young soldier who gets patronized in in all senses of the word very early on by his Chinese commanders. They single him out. We really come to know him in these border forces, and the border forces were really important to the Tang Empire because at this time they'd reached the sort of limit of their expansion with the Battle of Talas in 751, where they they lose a major battle against the Abbasid Caliphate and their allies, and so now there's kind of a turn away from expansion towards defense. 
And with all that's going on around them, it's a period of great chaos in Central Asia. And one of the ways that the Tang Empire protects itself is by creating these border forces, by taking uh, military figures, placing them in these provinces, and giving them incredible powers over military, finance, administrative control. And An Lushan rises through the ranks of one of these border forces. It's a trend that started even before Talas, where you have these, I think, nine military commandants, which are built up as basically almost independent kingdoms. Each of them has huge power. They have to report back to the imperial court, but they're operating on their own in a lot of cases. They're making decisions on their own. They get caught up in Central Asian politics. They're often accused of basically becoming mercenaries at some points of hiring out to other groups. But the the Tang know that they need to keep up these alliances in Central Asia too, and so to some degree they don't they don't really mind this, these connections to the wider world. Because, I mean, they, they lost Talas in part because they were betrayed by their, their allies, by one of the groups allied with them who switched over to the Abbasid forces. And so there's this, this, this knowledge that they need a powerful military, they need a powerful defence, and they also have to keep up these relationships. And these, these figures who can step between these two worlds, like Anushan, become a big part of that. But I think one of the things, when we take a look at other periods of Chinese history, and it's, it's hard for me, I, you know, I, I do a lot of research on the late imperial period. It's hard for me not to think about the 19th century where you had a lot of the devolution of central authority and military power to the provincial elites and how that, that can be you know, a temporary fix with long-term consequences. And you know, even without the idea that one of these military commanders, you know, particularly a military commander who's not Chinese, would then turn and launch a rebellion, that's certainly the most extreme example of the danger with this kind of system, but the idea that you're handing over so much central authority to really what are essentially warlords, and warlords for hire at that. Well, it's a system that sort of recurs throughout Chinese history. The example that everybody uses in the Tang is they they talk about the the, the Zhou, the uh, one of the first Chinese dynasties where they basically have a feudal system where everybody's got their own dukedoms, um, which in fact just collapses and becomes a series of kingdoms held together by some loose nominal allegiance to an emperor figure. It, it's very much something that's part of sort of the historical playbook. That's part of the way you can model the world and deal with your your defenses. It's hugely risky, and yet the reason why Anushan is still trusted, even though he's got this huge power and he begins to accumulate more and more power, more and more men, he builds up a force of 140,000 to 200,000 soldiers, including 8,000 soldiers in his own personal bodyguard, who are technically they're all his adopted sons, so that they're supposed to be completely loyal to him, his own personal force. But he's always really good at playing the capital. He's always really good at appealing to the Chinese court, appealing to their idea of what a barbarian should be, and he's very good at controlling the information that reaches them. So that means two things. Firstly, when he goes to the imperial court, he's always got a patron. He's always got people looking out for him. And he plays up this image, it seems like. He plays up this image of himself as this big, not necessarily that bright uh, barbarian who's very grateful to the Chinese for all the for all the goods they're giving him, or the largesse that's being lavished on him, and who sees the kind emperor as a father. And the, the emperor is very old at this point. He's been on the throne for over 30, 40 years, and he really sees Anne as almost like this pet, this big, lovable figure who he can stroke and please and who will be completely loyal to him. So he gets enormous amounts of money from the court. He's given gifts all the time, but they also don't take him quite seriously. So he's a big guy, and at this point he's increasingly just a fat guy. And he becomes this sort of almost Falstaff figure, where they're laughing at him, and for instance, Yang Guifei, who's the emperor's concubine, who we'll talk a little bit about in a moment, 
She at one point cuts this huge length of cloth and makes it into a diaper and ties it round him. And it's then like, oh, look at Anne, he's just like a big baby, it's so funny, and he's there laughing. You've got to think, you know, is, what does he think in his heart at this point? Is, is, he, is he there, like, laughing and playing the clown and just letting that anger build inside him? Because by the end of his life, he's a very angry man. I wonder, too, I mean, part of that is to perhaps get his enemies to underestimate him. Because he does play, I mean, apart from playing a particular role and, and kind of playing into a stereotype, he also plays the political game really well. You know, he Not only Yang Guifei, who is the concubine beloved by the emperor, there are many stories about her powers of seduction, her ability to manipulate the court, and her rather Rubenesque figure, but also the emperor's chancellor, the prime minister, the person who really is responsible more than anyone for the overseeing the government, an official named Li Linfu. And An Lushan cultivates relationships with these figures. And I think that's one reason, apart from the kind of Falstaffian figure he, he, he presents, that it, he's able to maintain his power for so long. And it, it, it insulates him. It's an armor against any rumors that might reach the capital about any other intentions that he might have. And then he has this relationship with Yang Guifei, who is this hugely important figure. It's always, in, it's always hard when talking about women in the Chinese court because the people who wrote the history books are really, really down on women. And so you have this repeat pattern whereby women get portrayed as seductresses, witches, figures who lead good men astray. And she's been the target of a lot of that. And I think, you know, that when we look at the sources, it's really hard to kind of separate trope from truth. You know, we see a lot of the same stories about women, women who are close to power in Chinese history. We see the same kind of things that are repeated over and over again. You know, whether it's Yang Guifei or Wogu Kailai or anyone in between. And I, I think that because Yang Guifei has been the subject of so many poems, operas, TV shows, really kind of hard to get at the heart of really what her role was in all of this. Although certainly, from the perspective of many people in China, the relationship, or that triangular relationship between the emperor, his beloved concubine, and his you know loyal soldier who then betrays them all, is of course a, a really dramatic tale. Yeah, it's basically the equivalent of slash fic. You know, you have this this soldier and this beautiful concubine, so people started to pair them together and to be like, oh, his his taking on the emperor was driven by his love of the concubine. And there doesn't really seem to be any actual evidence for this. What does seem to be the case is that she was fond of him. Uh, in fact, it seems that she adopted him as a child, which sounds very weird because she was actually younger than him. But it was an, adop it was a, an established pattern with Tang woman and some Central Asian leaders. And it sort of mirrored the relationship that the court wanted to have with the Central Asians, that they were these child figures who were sort of wild and playful and romantic and then could be civilized by the Chinese parent. So the idea that they had a, a romance doesn't seem to me very convincing. She just seems to have liked him. And he, you know, and also, honestly, when, again, looking at all the sources, he's a big fat guy covered in ulcers. It's, he's, he doesn't sound like a man who's going to win over the emperor's concubine at huge, intense personal risk to herself, too. So, I mean, if it's not you know, the usual story of, of Yang Guifei uh, inspiring An Lushan to, to go into rebellion, why rebel? And, and we kind of point to a moment about four years before he rebels. So right now we're looking around 752, and yeah. Li Linfu dies. And, and Li Linfu, who was this 
very powerful chancellor, this very powerful official. You could make an argument that it was in some ways kind of a, a patron, or at least a protector, of An Lushan. Uh, he, he's no longer at the court, and his replacement is another chancellor named Yang Guozhong, who turns out to be Yang Guifei's cousin. And the relationship between An Lushan and uh, Yang Guozhong is not particularly good. Uh, there's some idea that An Lushan doesn't really respect the new chancellor as much as he respected um, Li Linfu, and, and certainly doesn't seem to fear him as much as he feared Li Linfu. And this inspires uh, Yang Guozhong to start placing reports, true or not, um, in the emperor's ear about An Lushan's ultimate goals and intentions. Yeah, I think you can read Yang two ways. You can read him as somebody who, through his paranoia and his own desire to take power, drove An Lushan away from the court and ruined these carefully built-up relationships. Or, if we're being generous, we could see him as somebody who spotted the fact that this was a this guy was a huge danger early on and was trying desperately to warn everybody about him and kept being frustrated. And so it sort of comes to a head, really, when one of the envoys that the emperor sends to check on An is bribed, and Yang exposes this bribery and has the eunuch executed. So he's not only poisoning the, the wells at court against An, he's also cutting off the other ways he's been using to, to keep things good. So now not only are there new stories being told about An Lushan, but the old stories are starting to come out again, and no, no one's there to kind of bat down those rumors. And so we have this kind of classic situation where Anushan's in the provinces. Is he plotting rebellion or not? It doesn't really matter because everyone in the, the capital theme seems to think that he is. So at that point, he's got really nothing left to lose. Yeah, and there's a, a big moment where he sends a list of generals to the court for replacement, and these are all Han generals who he wants to replace with non-hand generals, so guys who will be more tightly bound to him. Because at the same time as he's been building up his favorite court, he's been very much building his favor with other Central Asian leaders and groups. He's been reaching out and building these patronage relationships that the culture depends on. He's been bribing people, he's been drawing people into raids or attacking their enemies, and building up this other power base that he's about to draw on. In this replacement, in the getting rid of the hand generals, replacing them with the non-hand, he's clearing the slate. He's, he's setting everything up either to keep serving the empire well, perhaps, or, or just to rebel. And at first, the emperor actually accepts this list of changes, but then Yang is like, no, stop, what are you doing? You know, this is obviously, this is obviously a plot. And I, I think it's kind of interesting, too, because when we look at this from the, the big picture, we look at this from kind of a Central Asian perspective, and then we kind of see what An Lushan's doing, this rebellion is, is fitting, again, this pattern that's going on throughout Asia at the time. I mean, the 8th century is a tumultuous period, and An Lushan's rebellion against the Tang kind of fits this. And so in 756, he throws off his loyalty to the emperor. He declares himself in rebellion. And one of the interesting things about the Tang Empire at this time is that they had two capitals. They had the capital in Chang'an, which is where today's Xi'an is located. They also had a secondary capital in the eastern part of the empire, in Luoyang. And it's, it's Luoyang that it bears the brunt of uh, An Lushan's opening salvos against his emperor. An Lushan at the time, he's based around what's today Beijing. He's in the northeast. And so he uh, leads his troops uh, southward or southwest. And a lot of it goes along the, the Grand Canal, which had been built by the, the previous dynasty. And, and in 756, he appears you know, outside the walls of Luoyang with his massive army 
and the officials of Luoyang, they, they give it up pretty quick. They're not, they're not prepared at all to deal with the kind of troops that An Lushan is bringing down from the north. Yeah, he has this battle-hardened army that's been out there for, you know, a decade or more fighting. Um, that has a huge cavalry force, which is the big sort of source of military power at this time. And that is used to this constant warfare. And the guys who are opposing him, and the Empire has been building up the inner forces a little bit because of this knowledge that there's trouble are coming. So they've been building up the inner forces, but these guys are, you know, peasant conscripts, ordinary men, no experience of fighting or very little. And they're going up against a, a hard, a really hardcore semi-mercenary army. And, you know, they, they quite sensibly realize they don't have a chance and give up the city. But that doesn't help the city because these are troops that are used to plunder, to pillage as a big part of their reward. And they're coming from the borderlands, which, although they're rich by global standards at the time, although they're, they're rich areas, don't compare to this to these inner Chinese cities where they just come in and they're like, oh, my God, this is looting heaven. And they just rip through Luoyang. And Luoyang, I mean, is, is, is pretty much sacked. Imagine that you're the emperor and the court in Chang'an to the west, and you're hearing these stories coming out of Luoyang. It, it's kind of fortunate for the Tang Empire that An Lushan takes a, not really a break, but they, they take a moment in Luoyang to kind of consolidate. He takes that moment also to declare his new dynasty, the, the state of Yan, and declares himself emperor. And it gives the Tang Empire maybe not time to launch a counteroffensive, but to at least to fortify the passes and the approaches to Chang'an. But when they do launch the offensive, they come up against the Tang imperial troops who are still outnumbered and ill-equipped, poorly trained, and are being led by men who are not experienced soldiers. Because they're not drawing on the border forces, because a lot of the border forces have sided, even the ones that aren't under his personal command, a lot of other border commanders have sided with that and have taken this chance. So instead of these hardened soldiers, they're being led by men who have come up through the sort of literati tradition, whose experience of battle is basically confined to, I, I wrote a terribly good book on, on, on the Han and their, their system, and I, I do think fighting is so vague interesting and they're basically the equivalent of risk players or, or online war gamers and they're coming up against guys who are totally forged by war and as a result chang'an is after a, a brief counter-offensive which ends disastrously but an lushan in 756 towards the end at 756 moves his army in position to take the capital and i think at this point the emperor and the court realize that that they need to to get the hell out of dodge so they prepare to evacuate the city and not just the court but the records at this time talk about a, a massive evacuation of the city this is the largest city in the world the richest city in the world and the stories of people just grabbing what they can from their homes and and, and running for their lives out of the gates uh, in anticipation of what An Lushan and his troops will do once they get there. And of course, one of these groups of refugees is the court itself. It's the emperor, it's his bodyguards, it's his chancellor, uh, Yang Wojong, and it's also his concubine, Yang Guifei. But in the end, they don't make it all that far. They don't make it very far at all. They get to Mawe Station, uh, which is, can't remember, I think not even a, a, not even a couple of hundred miles from the capital. And there the emperor's bodyguard decide that they've had enough. They've had enough of uh, Yang the Chancellor. And they turn on him and they, they murder him. They just hack him down where he stands. And then they go to the emperor and they're like, Yang Guifei has caused all this. You have to execute her. And he's all torn and romantic about it and eventually acquiesces to the death of this beloved woman. So you have this big romantic moment of angst and empire and age and death. So of course it's a little hard to know how true it all was, but there does seem to there does seem to be a core of truth there that the soldiers, the army had really decided enough was enough. 
you know, whatever really happened at, at Maui Station, it does seem to have broken Xuanzong, the emperor, because he, once he reaches a certain amount of safety, he, he retires and he hands over... Well, his, his son actually declares that he's retired first and, and takes over the emperorship and basically does it as a fait accompli. So he arrives and is told, you're now retired. But he doesn't fight back. He doesn't resist it. He's like, well, you know, fair enough. And he's really a man clearly in the middle of deep depression at this point. Somebody who's been a powerful leader before, really successful emperor in his early years, is now seeing that all fall apart and his beloved city destroyed, his, his wives, his concubines either executed by his own men or being executed by the rebel troops in a lot of cases. And so it's this, there's this real feeling of sort of leer of tragedy about him at this point. And I, I think at this point, too, we reach kind of a period where Anlushan is in control of both the, the capital, both capitals, the mm-hmm. secondary capital and the main capital. The court's on the run, but at the same time, doesn't feel like Anlushan really presses home his advantage he wants to take over the trappings of the, the throne. He wants to take the throne for himself. But he doesn't really change very much about the way things are run. He doesn't really try to transform Chang'an. In fact, Chang'an, despite the fears of his residents, is not sacked the same way that Luoyang is. And then we go through a period of, of really kind of several years where we have the Tang court in exile, you know, trying to regroup, trying to find allies to dislodge An Lushan. And at the same time, the Tang court caught up in its own inner politics and its own inner struggle. And then An Lushan at this, in his court, you know, they, it starts to kind of collapse from the but center. It's only, it's only really one year. I mean, he dies in 57. And he's killed, and by, he's his killed by his own son. That's and right. At this point, so what I think happened looking at it is that he, he's built this huge force of all these different groupings and allies and so on. And he's having to please a lot of people. So he's having to, he's having to reward a lot of people. He's having to hold together a coalition. And I think that more than anything else is why he can't sort of push on and take the whole country. is because he's trying to, he's handing out gifts here. He's maintaining these incredibly complicated diplomatic relationships. I mean, even when, when you look at Tang history, Tang border history, Central Asian history of, of the 8th century, trying to map it out is insane. It's just all these numerous relations of kinship, of fictive kinship, of wartime allies and betrayals. And he starts to get angrier and angrier. He starts to, he, he's suffering from some kind of physical ailment that's causing him pain. And he just starts lashing out in, you know, true kind of despot Game of Thrones fashion. At this time, in the Tang Dynasty, is basically Game of Thrones with twice as much nudity and half as many dragons. Yeah, and, and but before all of that has been sort of a little bit confined to the court, outside of the border areas where these alliances make a big difference to ordinary people's lives because they're getting raided or not raided, as the case may be, all, all of these sort of murders and assassinations and witchcraft accusations and poisonings and all this, they're being kept to a fairly small elite at the centre. They're not filtering through to everyday life. But now that sort of chaos at the heart of it is broken out all over the all over the country. Because as well as Anne himself, you of course you're having all these other powers that are taking advantage of New Tang weakness. So the Tibetans are attacking, or Turkic tribes are threatening threatening the border, they're losing territory all over the place. To people who are sometimes very, very nominally allied with Anne, but are really just out for themselves. And then you have all the attendant things of, of the, the breakdown of any big, complicated system. You have you know, famine and disease, the failure of water systems that is wrecking people's lives. It's appropriate to have asked the question, 
you know, given that the Anlushan Rebellion lasts almost seven years and, and lasts and outlives Anlushan himself, in fact, it spans really the reign of almost, I think, three, three, Tang, emperors, yeah. three Tang emperors. You know, it's worth kind of asking, I mean, did the Tang Empire win this war or did the state of Yan and, and Anlushan's descendants lose it? Well, and you look at the Tang afterwards and it's so shrunk. They've lost huge amounts of territory. They've lost the critical grassland areas on which their cavalry army depends. So their their breeding stock of horses goes from, I think, over 100,000 horses to 3,000 um, within 50 years. So they, they've lost the main so- one of the main sources of their military power. Uh, the empire is two-thirds of the size of what it was. And all kinds of uh, civil systems of ways of life have been destroyed, including ones that we, we can't even see now, that we have, that we, we, all these little areas where people would have been wiped out or villages destroyed and whole worlds lost that are invisible to us. We come to this period where this Tang state is not what it used to be. The state of Yan can't seem to build on any kind of momentum and it collapses from within. And I, I think one of the things you also see happening is that just like the Tang Empire can't count on its allies, the state of Yan can't either because a lot of the generals or military officers that they've relied on over the, the period of the rebellion, you know, once they get their own fiefdoms, they find themselves in the same position that the Tang was at the beginning of the rebellion because now they have these border or these provincial military authorities that their loyalty is to themselves and they have different generals. Um, you know, a very classic example is the general Shi uh, Suming, who's in charge of kind of the eastern districts east of where Luoyang is, he ultimately killed by his son. Still, It's a chain. His, An Lushan's son, so An is going mad, basically, and An Lushan's son kills him, and then he goes to Shishiming, and he says, I've, I've killed my father in order to save the kingdom, but you should be the new emperor. And Shishiming is probably like, well, killed your father. It's execution time. So there's this, and then ends up being being murdered himself. So there's this chain of you know destructive family family relationships, power relationships, and Yan ends up as this mixture of uh, little kingdoms and groupings, much of which by the end start to go back to the Tang. Start the leaders start to make deals when it becomes clear that the Tang are going to come out of this, even though severely weakened, at least as the most significant force on the uh, on the playing board. So the rebellion lasts until seven sixty three. And the Tang do emerge finally at the end. They are able to recapture Chang'an. They're able to recapture Luoyang. Although, as you mentioned, and I think it's an important point worth repeating, they they lose control over vast territories, important territories of their empire. We think about what are the long-term implications of such a a major major break, a major rebellion. And and one of the first things that people often talk about in terms of the An Lushan Rebellion is the demographic implications of this. And we've, we've recently, we, there's been research and, and, and people have written you know, quite serious books in which they've talked about the death toll here as, as being the equivalent of one-sixth of the world population or 36 million people were killed in the seven-year war. And yet the historical records that we have, um, or at least the reading of the historical records, it, it certainly seems like these numbers are, are wildly inflated. The, the 36 million figure was popularized by Steven Pinker in The Better Angels of Our Nature, which I think research is a generous term. What we're really talking about is basically looking at websites and, and cherry-picking the numbers that fit his big historiographical thesis that violence has gotten less. So he takes this figure from an amateur historian who's a much more serious figure, who is very clear that this isn't the number of dead, this is the 
drop in household registers in in the in the people who are paying tax basically who are being monitored by the system but of course because the system's broken down it's much harder to keep track of anybody so this doesn't represent the dead this represents the people who have disappeared who are who are no longer being monitored or who are outside who are now outside of imperial territory who are refugees who are just taking advantage of this to not try and avoid the eye of the state or who the state can't send people to the remote to remote areas because it doesn't have the manpower or the energy at this point. So the, the actual pop, the actual loss of, of people, I mean, it's really, like with any pre-19th, 20th century de- demographic work, it's really guesswork. So there are figures as high as 13 million, there are figures as low as 2 or 3 million, and you can really just take your pick. It's hard to, of course, to tell apart the, the actual deaths in battle from the deaths by famine and starvation that inevitably occurred alongside the war but you're talking at least you know millions dead yeah, so people are have moved south in order to avoid the war but they stay south because it's so much safer it's away from the northern horsemen and it's often better soil or a more amenable a more amenable climate it's closer to these new sea routes that are springing up so lots of factors are sort of pushing people south but it, it's the war that really solidifies that yeah, there was definitely a long-term trend going on that, that predates the Anlushan Rebellion of this gradual transfer of the cultural and economic power from the Yellow River Valley to the Yangtze River Valley, but we really see that accelerated. And when we come out the other side, particularly after the Tang Empire, and then with the next dynasty, the Song Dynasty, which emerges you know, beginning in the 10th century, we see how the cultural and economic center has now been moved, not just to the Yangtze River Valley, but particularly to the area just what we call south of the river, or Jiangnan. And Jiangnan remains the, the cultural and economic heart of China well into the modern period. And definitely An Lushan's rebellion and the, the dis- dislocations, you know, both the, the refugees who were trying to you know, find a better life. And a lot of these people who dropped off the tax rolls very often ended up in some of these new areas. And so when we have uh, another census take place at the beginning of the Song, Suddenly we have people reappearing, but they're not really reappearing, they're just being counted again. But there's also, I think, a, another another outcome of this, which is, think about the Tang as this great cosmopolitan empire, and we talked a lot about how open it was, but after the An Lushan Rebellion, there seems to be a kind of a turn inward, or, or at least there's an increasing anxiety about foreign elements within the civilization that we didn't see before. So one of the big factors in that is that toward the end of the rebellion, towards the end of the war, the Tibetans are really threatening uh, what's left of the Tang Empire. And in order to cope with that threat and help sort of finally quell the rebellion, they call upon the Uyghur, who at this time are this Mongol people, uh, or people in modern-day Mongolia for the most part. They're Manichaeans, which is this Persian uh, religion that's spread all the way into Central Asia. And they're very fierce fighters. So the Tang hire Uyghur troops, huge numbers of Uyghur troops to fight against the Tibetans, to act as a deterrent against other attackers, and to put down the rebellion. And as part of that, they give the Uyghur um, a whole bunch of concessions, including special status in Chinese cities, including a clear role for Manichaeanism, including all these protections that Han seemed to come to resent somewhat. And that culminates in the the, the closing of the, the Buddhist and Manichaean and other foreign religions in 845, where... That where you have this tide of sort of nativism, of, of fear and hatred of non-Chinese and non-Chinese religion sweeps the, the country. 
Yeah, and not just even in terms of top-down oppression of certain foreign religions, but you even see it in the intellectual trends of the time. Where you have, 100 years after Al Nushan, you have thinkers like Han Yu, who's a very famous philosopher. He, he's kind of seen as the, the beginnings of the, the movement that takes root in the Song Dynasty that we call Neo-Confucianism. This, this really massive overhaul, if you will, of Confucian cosmology and, and ideology. And, and one of the things about Han Yu is, is you know, he writes these, these rants, these screeds to the emperor, castigating him for allowing foreign elements at court. There's a, a very famous memorial about the veneration of a bone of the Buddha, which, which Han Yu finds absolutely abhorrent. And there's something that's very at odds with, with what we think of the Tang Empire prior to the Anlushan Rebellion, this turn towards a, a kind of nativism that will, in some ways, linger on even after the end of the Tang Empire. In the uh, next podcast, in fact, we're going to be talking about one of the other big reasons for that, and that's the Kitai, who are northeastern people who, out of the chaos of the fall of the Tang, established their own kingdom that's a constant thorn in the side of the next dynasty, and so they become identified as the enemy. The barbarian turns from being somebody with whom you can ally and trade and be influenced by to somebody who's a clear and present danger. So please join us next time for our, the second in our series of, well, second in the Barbarian at the Gate series about barbarians at the gate. We'll talk about the Khitan and the Kite people. Thank you so much for joining us. My name is Jeremiah Jenny. Thank you for listening. I'm James Palmer. We'll see you next time.